Well, good morning and welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. In person, we have Kids Church, uh, we have uh, prayer, worship and song. We study the Word of God together. We connect for uh, community, getting to know each other. Throughout the week, we meet in small groups, and our small groups uh, meet in homes. Uh, they meet online. We have an online small group that meets on Wednesday night. You can email small groups at faithonhill.com for more information. Uh, we also have a youth group on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m., and uh, great time there. We have a young adult small group that's also meeting on Tuesdays as well, so uh, love to have you check those out. We are having a church work day on June 3rd. That's the first Saturday in June. It's going to start at 9 a.m. Uh, and so if you want to come out and just do our, you know, a couple times a year we do a big work day around the, the property. And so love to have you out there, uh, especially if you're somebody who's been kind of been checking out the church. You're thinking, hey, I'd like to get to know some folks, but I don't know if I want to come on a Sunday morning. This is an opportunity. So that's happening uh, June 3rd. If you have a Bible, we're going to continue our study in the book of the Revelation in chapter 14. The book of the Revelation is very Jekyll and Hyde for me personally. I don't know how it reads for you, but for me personally, it's very Jekyll and Hyde. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 speak directly to the church, to us who are believers. Chapters 4 and 5 give us great hope for the future, for eternity, to know the power of God, to know the presence of God. Then chapter 6 begins. And really, since we've been chapter 6 and beyond, it has been judgment, judgment, devastation. The world continues to refuse to repent. The world continues to double down on evil, double down on wickedness, double down on war and injustice and corruption, double down on, on uh, idolatry and, and all of the things that come with that. The last few weeks, you know, we saw in chapter 11 how God put these two witnesses in Jerusalem and they were rejected. And eventually they're killed by the Antichrist, and the world rejoices. And then in chapter 12, we see how the devil is going after uh, the people of God and, and waging war against them. In chapters 13, we see the, the first beast that comes out of the sea, who uh, basically he's who people think of as when we say the Antichrist. And then the second beast who comes out of the earth, and he is uh, who's referred to as the false prophet. You know, and there's this unholy trinity of the devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And everything seems down and bleak. But chapter 14, verse 1 says, Then I looked, and behold, before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. He sees all of this stuff. He has seen the judgment, the destruction, the devastation, the, the refusal of humanity to change their ways. He sees the beasts of the earth and the sea rising strong and powerful in opposition to God. But then he looks and he sees the lamb. 
someone asked me this week about numerology. And numerology is the idea that numbers have significance and power and uh, importance. In terms of the Christian faith, there is a certain numerology in the Bible. A certain one. It's, it's not ascribing that, you know, we, we say, oh, you were born on the third day of the third month, therefore you will be this or that. That's, that's foolishness and superstition. We do see numbers repeating. We see certain numbers repeat. You know, uh, God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. Um, seven is generally a number of completeness. Uh, God said that there were 70 cycles of seven-year periods that he had for dealing with the people of Israel. And we believe that the book of Revelation largely takes place within that final seven-year period. Forty is repeated. You know, uh, Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights in the story of the ark. For 40 years, the people of Israel wandered in the desert. Uh, 12 is repeated. There are 12 patriarchs, the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and there are 12 disciples. These things are repeated, and you see them over and over again. Jesus said, you know, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the, the whale, or not the whale, the fish, uh, for three days and three nights, and so the Son of Man be in the ground for three days. There's certain things that repeat. Anything beyond that is speculation. Anything beyond that goes into superstition and likely foolishness. But there are things that repeat that seem to be opposite. We were told last week that the, the name of this Antichrist, the beast that comes from the sea, is linked to a number, 666. And yet, all through the scripture, the number that's linked with God is seven. I don't think it's a stretch to say that the Antichrist is powerful, significant, but ultimately and always falls short of the true Christ, of Jesus himself. And so you look and you see the devil and his beasts, powerful, conquering. People are following them and you say, oh no, evil is winning. And then John sees the lamb and the lamb is supreme. Jesus conquers. Jesus will prevail. He has with them 144,000. Now we've seen them before back in uh, chapter 11 that have not bowed their knee. They have the name of Jesus and the name of the Father on their foreheads. That is in direct contrast to the mark of the beast. Remember it said that the, the, the second beast, the false prophet, causes people to have a mark either on their hand or their forehand. And if you don't have that mark, you can neither buy nor sell. It's the, it's the mark of allegiance to the beast. And in contrast, here are those who on their forehead have the name of God written on them. And there is this sound, and the sound I heard was like harps being played. And then verse 3, he says, They sang a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and the elders that no one could learn except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Meaning, they are the only ones who could learn it because they're the only ones who experienced this. They're the only ones who had this particular role and journey and calling. I'm not jealous of this, by the way. 
I, I said when we talked about the 144,000 a few weeks ago, and this is true, all throughout history, there have been those who have tried to claim that as their status. I'm one of the 144,000. Our group is special. Our group is more holy, more significant, more loved by God, and we are the 144,000. I'm, I'm not jealous of them. They live when they live, and they are called to do what they are called to do. It's very possible that they're jealous of us. If what's going on with the 144,000 is as I understand it, that during the final seven-year period that God deals with Israel and calls them back to himself, here are 144,000 people who have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And then they say, okay, I get it now. And they follow Jesus. Because these 144,000, they're Jewish people. And all of a sudden, they turn around and say, Jesus is our Messiah. Jesus is the answer. We thought we were following God, but we weren't. They might be jealous of us. You guys had it figured out earlier, sooner. You guys had the blessings of following Jesus way before we did. There are those who have... They're born, we're born when we're born. We live when we live. We have the callings that God gives us. It's not a question of, am I in the 144,000 or am I in one of those who lived in epic times and were martyred and they're the true heroes. The question is, what do I do with what I'm given now, today? And these 144,000 lived within the callings God gave them to the fullest. It says... That these, verse 4, are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Let's unpack that. You could translate it as the NIV, which is the translation I'm reading from, says, uh, you know, that they have not defiled themselves with women for they remain virgins. Other translations choose to say it this way. They have remained as pure as virgins, untouched. Now this leads to all kinds of questions that have to be unpacked. Are they actual virgins? Are, and, and if they are, uh, does that have significance? And uh, does that mean that they're only men because they haven't defiled themselves with women? Uh, does that mean that if I do, uh, you know, have, if I'm not a virgin, am I unpure? Am I defiled? All of these things kind of have to be worked through. And I'll say this. No one is pure. No one is blameless. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, I have no trouble believing that it says that they are, they are pure, they, they've lived holy lives, and yet we, would, we could find out that they had been all kinds of partiers and uh, debaucherers and all, any big word you want to use for, for fooling around. And then they met Jesus. And Jesus makes us pure. Jesus makes us blameless. This is something to work through. We live in cynical days. We do. And we have reason. We have reason to live in cynical days. We, we have people who, over the last 10, 
20, 30, 50 years were held up in great esteem. Leaders, pillars in the church globally, church nationally, church locally. And we have found out that they have not lived blameless lives. We have found out that they were not pure as virgins. We found that out. And, and, and they have been very publicly exposed in some cases. There's a documentary on FX right now. Uh, there's a, there's, if you go on YouTube, you can find an even more uh, pointed documentary that was produced in Australia by the Australian Broadcasting Company, both about Hillsong Church. In our state, there was no more influential church. I, I will stand by this. In the last 40 years, there's no more influential church than Applegate Christian Fellowship down in, in Medford area. And, and I don't have time to get into this, but churches in this area that influence us wouldn't exist without that church down in Medford. And both the founding pastor and his replacement in within six months, it was exposed their sins. We have reason to be cynical. We have reason to be cynical. Our church... And our family of churches come from what's called the Wesleyan tradition. John Wesley was this guy who lived, you know, a long time ago. And God worked in John Wesley's life. He grew up in the church. He, he was a Christian from birth because in England you were just a Christian. You were, I mean, you might be irreligious. You might, you know, just say, I don't believe in God. But you were either a Christian or you weren't. And he was even, he even became an ordained minister. He was a, a preacher. And then one day, God changed his heart. And he had a massive life change. And it wasn't that he suddenly believed in God. He had always believed in God. It wasn't that he suddenly believed in Jesus. He had always been believed in Jesus, but something changed within him. And in the scripture, we see that. The disciples believed in Jesus. They were following him around. But after the resurrection, they received the Holy Spirit. Something changed. We see that in people's lives where they believe in God for years and years and years. And then something changes. Theologically, our tradition calls that uh, the work of sanctification. Remember, there's two big words that every Christian should know. Justification was when we're made right before God. Sanctification is when we are made like Jesus. So when it says that these 144,000, that these were blameless, no lie was found in their mouth, that they hadn't defiled themselves, I believe that's possible. Part of the deal in Wesley's day was that they were incredibly optimistic about the future. The Industrial Revolution, technology growing, exploration happening. Not all good, I know, but it was happening, and they were very optimistic about everything. So it was easier for them to believe that this was possible. We are cynical and skeptical of everything, and it's harder for us to believe that this is possible. It's harder for us to believe that we could live undefiled. It's harder for us to believe that we could live victorious lives, that no lie could be found in our mouths, that we could live lives that aren't defiled uh, sexually, uh, that aren't defiled uh, through bitterness, that aren't defiled through greed. It's hard for us to believe that. 
It's hard for us to believe that about others, about leaders, about parents, about grandparents, about neighbors, about ourselves. We don't believe that our kids, that God could have that work in our kids' lives. And yet here are these 144,000 likely younger people who hadn't defiled themselves. At, at least in the sense of when they became Christians, Jesus made them. I just said that, now i got to correct that. When they put their faith in Jesus, because I don't know if they're Christians or not. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, and if you have a question about what I mean, you can email me, adam, at faithonhill.com. But the big idea is that they had not defiled themselves. And God had done, they had allowed God to do his work of holiness in their lives. And then they stood blameless, not because we are blameless, not because people are blameless, but because Jesus made them blameless and they had accepted his work in their lives. And this is in contrast, direct contrast to the devil, his beasts, and the people who follow them. They've said, I am going to give myself fully to the rejection of God, the rebellion against God. And here are those who say, no, we know the truth. We know the truth. Now, verse 6 is interesting. Verse 6 says, Then I saw another angel flying in midair. He had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Why is an angel presenting the gospel? God could have used the angels to present the gospel. And at times, he has. Angels appeared to the shepherds and declared the good news that Jesus was born. Two angels appeared to the women at the tomb and said, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Angels appeared when Jesus ascended into heaven and said, Hey, what are you doing here? He's, he's, with, he's in heaven. Go, go to Jerusalem where he told you to wait. But generally speaking, 99.99999% of the time, in all of human history, God has not chosen to use the angels. God has chosen to use people. God has chosen to use people. And there have been many reports, especially among the Muslim world, where God uses dreams and visions to lead people to him. Almost universally in those reports and testimonies, God has spoken to somebody through a dream or a vision, and then, the, to put it one way, the deal has been sealed. Somebody comes in contact with a Christian, and it's there that things are kind of locked in. God has chosen to use people. So why is it that suddenly he is using an angel to proclaim the eternal gospel when he's never done this before? When something happens over and over and over again, that's what I was saying earlier about Christian, Christians, uh, a Christian view of numerology. You know, number 40 is repeated, the number 3 is repeated, the number 7 is repeated. When there are certain numbers repeated over and over again, I take notice. When something breaks pattern, when something always happens this way, and then boom, something's different, I also take notice. Why is it that an angel is now proclaiming the gospel to every nation, language, tribe, tongue, and people? I would argue... First of all, that the church has been removed. The rapture has happened. Secondly, it's possible that there's no one left to do it. The Jewish people who have turned to God have been taken to safety. That happened in chapter 11. It's possible. Why are the 144,000 there with Jesus? Because they've been killed. 
martyred for their faith. It's possible that no one's left to tell the world except supernatural means. Now, of course, it is also possible, I'm going to admit, that it's possible that this is John trying to understand what a satellite is or something else with futuristic technology. Sure. But what does the angel say? He says in a loud voice, Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. It's a final invitation to worship God. Even at this point, in the final months, weeks, days of human society and history as we know it, as Jesus is preparing to return to the earth and set things right, even in this moment, there is an invitation for the people to repent. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Babylon, ancient, ancient Babylon, was founded by this fellow Nimrod, who the the book of Genesis describes as being defiant towards God. Babylon became an ancient center of pagan worship, of power. The Tower of Babel, possibly built there, which was an act of defiance against God. In the New Testament... Rome is referred to as Babylon, the seat of power in the Mediterranean world, defiant against God. And now this angel says it's fallen, it's done. All of these these things that have been opposed to God will fail. Now, when I was in Bible college, 9-11 happened. And oh my goodness, I remember that night people found this verse and they said, fallen, fallen. Oh, two towers. That means that, that this is what that's talking about. And I just shook my head. And it showed me that really smart people, really well-meaning people, really genuine people, we can fall into fantasy, speculation, and nonsense if the need arises. That very day, I had taken a class on how to like properly uh, interpret the Bible, you know, not to just make up whatever you feel like, but what, what, are, what are like sound ways of approaching the scripture? And yet we just threw it all out the window. I still remember that very, very clearly. And that's why when it comes to the book of the Revelation, we want to have a loose grip. We don't want to pretend that we know what's going on, but we also want to be careful that we don't start making things up that fit some current situation. This is speaking ultimately about the final Babylon, whatever that is, that is standing in opposition to God. Ancient Babylon, Rome, whatever the final one is that stands in opposition to God is fallen. A third angel follows them in a loud voice, says, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hands, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast or its image for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of God's people who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. 
I believe, as I understand the scripture, and I like to think I've made a fairly sound argument for why I think these things. From the book of Daniel, chapter 9, there is one seven-year period left in which God will deal with his people Israel. I believe that the book of the Revelation, while never specifically saying there's a seven-year period, makes it pretty clear with days and months that are spoken. You know, this goes for three and a half years, and then this happens for another three and a half years. Three and a half plus three and a half is seven. I also think that generally speaking, the book of the Revelation follows a sort of linear timeline. The first seal is open, this happens. The second seal is open and this happens. The third seal is open and this happens. And what happens with the third seal doesn't happen before, if that makes sense. But I also know that the seventh seal is so big, it happens spread out among seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet is so big, it's spread out among seven bowls of wrath uh, that we will see poured out before all this is done. So I hold the timelines very loosely. Generally speaking, I think the book of the Revelation follows a linear timeline, but yet here these angels appear and John sees them, and it's very possible that one appears at the beginning and one appears somewhere in the middle and one appears later on. We don't know. Uh, the, the mark of the beast, it can't appear towards the end because the, the mark of the beast happens you know, kind of in the middle of all these things. And so, you know, what good is a warning if it happens after the fact? What that just tells me is I hold these things loosely, generally speaking. I try to be very humble. And I would hope that people who have disagreements with what what I'm saying would also have that same humility. And that we wouldn't, as Christians, divide over these things. But we would focus on the main point. What's the main point that the angel is saying? First, to the last minute possible, God will give a chance for people to repent. That's the first angel. God will seek the lost for as far as it takes and as long as it takes, however he can. And if you say, oh, I think I'm too far gone. I I think that this person over there just is too far. Until we die, God will continue to seek those he is wanting to save. That's the first thing I focus on with the angel. The second angel proclaims that the greatness of this world will fall away. And we could look and say, who is going to stand against the powers that be? What can we do to change things? And there will come a point where God says, I'm the one that will shut this down. And if we put our faith in the world around us, it will fail if we, as it says here, patiently wait if we are faithful to Jesus in the waiting, there will be blessing and rewards. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. How did they die? I think the implication is that many here died because of their testimony for Jesus and they will be blessed for it. The third angel is a warning. And as I said last week when we talked about the mark of the beast, I do not believe there is anywhere that you can say from the Bible that someone will take the mark of the beast by accident. And there are those fear mongers 
who over the last several years have tried to tell people, don't take a vaccine, that could be the mark of the beast. Oh, be careful. I remember when barcodes became a thing in grocery stores. I'm just old enough to remember that transition. Watch out, watch out, because if you, if you aren't careful, that could be the mark of the beast. Fear mongers and liars. No one will take this mark by accident, by chance. Oops, I didn't know what I was doing. People will choose to align themselves with the devil, his antichrist, and his false prophet. And they will worship the devil through worship of the beast and his image. And God's saying, that is the point where there is no return. Now you might say, Adam, I thought you just said until we die, there's, no, there's nowhere that God won't stop pursuing us. Generally speaking, yes. But I'm also not unaware that it's very possible, it's very possible that somebody hits a point of no return before they die. It's very possible that somebody hardens themselves so much or, or because of their sin, it's possible that you reach a point where you are not able to repent, even though your body lives, what, what if you, you choose to so degrade yourself or because of, of sin, drunkenness or whatever, you crash and you're in a vegetative state and, and you can't make that choice. There are people who, have, I believe, sadly, have gotten to a point of no return even before they die. For most people, it's probably until they die. But let's be aware of that. And there's a final warning here. A final warning. But if you choose this, you choose death. And what God is saying is, if you choose death, it's worth it. If you choose not to take the mark of the beast and you are killed for it, it is worth it. Verse 14, then I looked and there before me was a white cloud. Seated on the cloud was one like the son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. I saw another angel come out of the temple and call in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud. Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle on the earth. And if you don't know what a sickle is, it's an old harvesting tool for harvesting wheat. You can Google search that business and uh, check out Google images on that. And the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another who was in charge of the fire came out from the altar and called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vines, for its grapes are ripe. The wheat is ripe. The grapes are ripe. The time of harvest is here. The angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. There they were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising high as a horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadia. That's about 180 miles or 300 kilometers. The imagery here is that of harvest. Everything is ready. Everything is right. Why hasn't God done this yet? Because it wasn't time. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Because the moment wasn't here. But now the moment is here and they are acting and they are moving and the judgment begins and the blood flows up to a horse's bridle, which is pretty high, for a distance of 180 miles. It is significant what is about to happen. And next week we'll speak of it, but I'll say this in closing. 
The good news of Jesus Christ is that we have been saved from the judgment that we have deserved and we have received the grace that we did not deserve. That's the good news of Jesus Christ, that you and I, we were born sinners and then we became sinners by our own action. And through Jesus' death on the cross, He made the way so that our sins might not just be forgiven, but completely obliterated and washed away and thrown as far as the east is from the west. That is how far God has thrown our sins from his presence. All of this that is coming is right, and it's just. Some things we as people, we can agree with. Oh, yeah, God's going to judge the world for... Uh, war and violence and corruption and slavery and what we do to the environment, all of these things. Somebody else might say, oh, but, but these things over here, you keep saying those things are bad. I don't think they're that bad. God knows what is good. God knows what is evil. And all of these things are deserved. All of these things are things that we have brought on ourselves. It's not terrible that God is doing these things. It is wonderful that he has offered us the chance of salvation from these things. To the unbeliever, the person who says, I don't know. I don't know where I'm at with God. I I know that the world's messed up. I know the world's wicked. I know, but I don't know how to get out of it. The invitation is here. The invitation is here. What does the first angel say? Fear God, give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. We can't know God outside of knowing Jesus Christ. We can't know God unless Jesus is how we connect with him. We can't have our sins forgiven unless we have believed in our hearts and confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's the the word that I give to you today. And if you want to know more about that, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. We have church live and in person every Sunday morning at 1030. Come find out. To Christians who are watching, I say this. When it says there were the 144,000 redeemed from the earth who had not defiled themselves, there was no lie in their mouth, they are blameless. In faith, I don't know about anybody else, but in faith, we can trust God that he will do the work in ourselves. That even in these cynical and skeptical days, God can do something new and fresh and that seems totally unbelievable. And he can set people free from addiction, set people free from the bondages of sin, set people free from lust, set people free from greed, from bitterness, from resentment. Do you believe that God can take your soul, your very soul, and so fill it with his love that the people you hate become the people that you can't help but want to pray for, want to show kindness to, want to serve? That's the work of sanctification. In faith, we can believe that that work happens and is happening and will happen in our lives today. God bless you. We'll see you in the small groups this week and next Sunday at 10.30 a.m as we continue to study the book of the Revelation. 